Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the uh, third session of the Tanakh and the Halachic Mindset as part of the Semicha program of Torah Tahava. We've discussed the three first chapter of uh, Bereshit so far. <clears throat> to recap the important concepts that are introduced in those two chapters, in three chapters, are that all men were created in the image of God, that which leads to the idea of equality between all races and also between the genders. The idea that there was a certain period where we had a perfect world, but that exists only in potential, that's the divine world, and that the world as we know it is, is uh, afflicted with many problems and it is our responsibility to fix it and perfect it and protect it. And there's also the idea contained in the story of Etzadat and Etzahayim that all humans go through the stage of recognition and growth that comes from uh, the realization that we have free will that's eating as a dot, and that we all have a solution to fight our demons or to take control of life through eating the food of Etzahayim, which is the Torah. There's also the storyline in Bereshit that presents what happens with, to humanity as God attempts to, to convey the, uh, the moral message of the Torah to humanity. So there is a failed attempt and then a successful attempt. The, fra- the failed attempt is the one that runs through Adam, Cain, Lemech, and Noah. And the successful attempt is the one that starts with Abraham. The difference between the two stories is that Adam is the first creation, according to the, to the Torah, that is the first creation of man, of God. And there were, there were no special tests or uh, examination to see if it fits the uh, the role of being the leader of humanity or the one who accepts the uh, the divine word, the Torah, then it goes on in the same manner until Noah, who is picked as a as a righteous man, just in comparison to his generation. And it's only when Abraham comes that Abraham is uh, chosen based on his character traits and his behavior, with the goal of eventually teaching the Torah to the whole world. This is an important concept because today Judaism has uh, abandoned the idea of reaching out to other nations. Even within Judaism, we 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 build boundaries and uh, try to alienate certain people. But the original idea was that the Torah is a is a way of life that could affect the whole world. And as such, if we believe that this is really the the best way that one can manage the world and make it a better place, then we should really teach it to all humanity. And Avraham is chosen. When he is chosen, we don't know yet why he is chosen. But then later on, in chapter 18, the Torah reveals that, Avraham 
I have chosen him in order for him to teach or because he is the one who will teach his children and his descendants after him they will follow the path of the Lord the path of Hashem to do loving kindness and justice meaning that instead of giving the Torah to all humanity as it was originally planned through Adam now the Torah is going to be given to one individual who has the potential to teach and educate future generations they in turn will teach their extended family and then when we look at Matan Torah before Matan Torah God tells Moshe you will be for me a kingdom of priests now if we look at the concept of Kohanim, the Kohen was one who had to serve in the temple, but the rest of the time had to teach and convey the message of the Torah to the people. As later on we find in Malachi, The lips of the Kohen are the guardians of knowledge, and they will ask to learn Torah from him, for he is the Malach, the messenger of God. So if God tells Moshe, you will be a kingdom of priests. That means that Am Yisrael, in relationship to the rest of the world, is as the Kohen is to the rest of the people. Meaning, we have to be the teachers that convey the words of the Torah and promulgate this knowledge. So, this is the storyline that runs, as I said, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to later on Moshe. And this is something that we have to uh, revive and go back to in teaching as much as possible, not only to Jews, but also to non-Jews, the concept of the Torah as a way of life. And as we'll see when we get to the books of, uh, of Halachot, and especially Devarim, how uh, the mitzvot of the Torah are tailored to improve our life and to lead us to better life for us and for all of humanity. So... When you look at chapter 4, which starts with the uh, dispute between Cain and Hevel, Cain and Hevel, the, uh, that story ends with murder, where Cain defends his actions and defies God. This is a story of the deterioration of humanity. The story itself is complicated. One might say that this is a story where Hashem shows us what not to do. We should not, as parents, uh, give preferential treatment to one child over the other. And if we do that, we have to explain what happens and not just say, uh, you have to accept reality, because that doesn't end well. In any case, Cain rebels against God and says... You have driven me away and I have to hide from you. His accusation is that God's system is not working because Adam had to hide from God and eventually was driven away from Gan Eden. So Cain says, if it happened to my father, it happened to me, then maybe something is wrong with the system. God pardons him and let him live, lets him live. But the uh, the next step is the story of Lemech, where Lemech officially announces that he's going to kill anyone who will oppose him or even uh, wound him or do anything against him. This is what he says, I killed the man for wounding me and the child for uh, bruising me. 
And then he goes on to say, Kishivatayim, you come to Kain, Velemech Shivim Veshima. If Kain is avenged sevenfold, then Lemech will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Meaning that now Lemech looks at what happened to Kain. He says, if we have a murderer that was able to escape unscathed, unpunished from the hand of God, then I could do it deliberately. So we have this progression or regression from the sin of Adam and his wife which was a transgression of an arbitrary law that did not have an impact on anyone i mean according to the according to the the, the way the story is told no other human being was affected by the transgression of eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge this is the maybe the the lesser level of transgression where maybe certain municipal laws are being broken etc then we have a crime of passion committed by kind where out of anger he kills his brother the next level is that of Lemech, which we could call premeditated murder, that it says, I'm now making an announcement that I will kill anyone who will oppose me. And that comes, that statement of Lemech comes simultaneously with the beginning of civilization, which is described through the four children of Lemech, Yaval, Yuval, Tuvalkain and Naama that represent all facets of civilization. Yaval is Avi Yoshev Mikne. He represents agriculture. He dwells in tents. He has flocks. Yuval is Avi Koltofeski Novergav. He's the, he's the musician who plays the lyre and the pipe. But the musician is not just an entertainer. Definitely not an entertainer, but rather a, uh, a historian and a teacher. Because in antiquity, all of the oral tradition was conveyed through music, and even today we we see that we could remember much better words of songs than texts of books, or uh, we could remember paragraphs of chapters from the Torah that we studied with the trope. And Tuvalkain is Lotesh Kol Barzel. He's the blacksmith who represents technology. The sister is Naama. The word Naama means pleasant. So they. The four children encompass all facets of civilization, agriculture, technology, education, and uh, leisure or enjoying life. But with them comes this Lamech who says, I will control by sheer force. And that leads to the story of the flood, where this becomes not only the ideology of an individual by the ideology of a government that is in chapter Hamas. the land was filled with Hamas Hamas in the Torah means injustice under the disguise of a legal system that which could compare to the Nazi uh, Nuremberg laws that put Jews outside the framework of the law. They were all legal. They were all voted on and, and legislated, but they are, they are uh, laws of Hamas, of injustice. So from Adam, who commits a transgression against an arbitrary law, to Cain, who commits a crime of passion, to Lemech, who declares premeditated murder to uphold his... Uh, rule or authority over those around him to the government of Hamas who destroys the whole earth through injustice and then 
the story of the flood, which has its own ideological problems, but not immediately related to halakha, so they will not be discussed here. The important thing to discuss in terms of halakha in what follows the, the flood is one that uh, we see that the Torah moves from telling Adam and his wife and his descendants to be vegetarian, which we see in the in the first chapter of creation, Chapter 1, verse 29. I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. But then, after the, after the flood, the Torah says, Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat, as with the green grasses, I give you all these. However, you must not, however, eat flesh with its life blood in it. So this is important to bear in mind because as we as we look at the laws of shahita, of slaughtering of meat and milk, etc., we will realize that the idea of uh, educating people not to be cruel is essential to Judaism, and only that the uh, extreme demand of being vegetarian before the flood led to. It's a possibility that, that that is what led to extreme violence amongst humans. So even today, in certain, we could look at, uh, at uh, a culture such as Hinduism, where uh, so some people are vegan, but at the same time, there's the system of caste of, uh, of a stratified society where uh, more than 6 million people are called untouchables and live in subhuman conditions, uh, how can one reconcile the idea of I'm not going to harm an animal, but it's okay if uh, humans live in squalid uh, conditions like that? So the Torah balances it out here, but we'll see later on what is the uh, uh, what are the implications of the idea of avoiding cruelty and taking care of the world in terms of the halakha. Here comes an essential uh, verse: Shofech dama adam ba'adam damoi shofech. The rabbis derived from this pasuk, whoever sheds the blood of men by men shall his blood be shed, for is an image did God make men. The rabbis derived from this pasuk the halacha that abortion is allowed when the fetus endangers the life of the mother. We will get to this halacha hopefully later when we when we do uh, bioethics, but for now. Let us look at the Pshat of the Pasuk. The Pshat of the Pasuk has nothing to do with abortion, which the rabbis learned from the word Shofech Dama Adam Ba'adam. He who sheds the, the, the blood of men within men, his blood will be shed. So they learned that abortion, which is killing one person within another person, is forbidden. But this doesn't work with the Pshat of the Pasuk because the, the way it's divided is very clear. Shofech Dama Adam, he who sheds blood of men, Ba'adam Damu Shofech is his blood will be shed by man. The reason why the Torah emphasizes that is that in ancient societies, there was a concept of kofir, of ransom, of redeeming a, uh, a murderer for payment. And we will see this concept com- coming up again in the Torah and other places. The idea to us sounds preposterous to let a murderer walk free in return to a certain payment that he will make to the court or to the community. 
But to ancient society, it made sense because if a murder occurred within a small village, let's say, that has a hundred inhabitants, and let's say that the blacksmith killed the carpenter, that each person has, has a profession, has a role, the blacksmith killed the carpenter. Now the, the villagers are missing a carpenter. If they will convict the blacksmith in murder and will kill him as well, then they will be missing a blacksmith as well. So for their immediate selfish gain, they would have thought that it's better to have the blacksmith pay a fine that maybe will serve as a deterrent to other criminals and let him live. And Torah says that this is not a this is not an option and that we cannot relay the responsibility for punishing criminals to God because it is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to establish a judicial system and to punish those who offend other offend or harm or kill other humans. The insistence of the Torah is he who sheds the blood of men, by men his blood will be shed. Meaning that there's no pardon for that. For man was created in the image of God, and he who kills another person negates the possibility, the idea of the image of God. Therefore he lost his own image. And that is a an admonition that is still, I think, valid today. Of course, after due process, after making sure that there was indeed murder, that it was done deliberately, that there are no other uh, considerations, and that the person was not framed. But after all, the Torah is in favor of that punishment because this is how uh, society will be established in, uh, with, a, with, a, with, an or, with order and justice. So, despite our reluctance to be violent, there, uh, there is here the understanding that sometimes this kind of violence is necessary because it will prevent future violence and uh, in a way we could say that the murderer himself pronounce his verdict by killing another person, by because he uh, denied the idea of uh, the image of God. So, of course, the Bedin, the court, has to be very careful with that. We don't do it today in Israel, in most countries of the world, but this, in, from the point of view of the Torah, if we don't, we are, I'm not advocating for uh, applying the death penalty in that manner, but the idea of responsibility, that it is a responsibility of society to take care of the uh, the crimes or the, the the wrongdoings within the community is an important one. We cannot say, let God take care of it. We have to do as much as we can uh, to amend the situation. Following the story of the society or the, the world of the flood, we encounter the, um, the story of the Tower of Babel, of which I have written, and I'll say it briefly, that the Tower of Babel is not a story of sin and punishment because the uh, the tower, the builders of the tower did not intend to do anything, uh, not yet, they did not harm men, they did not turn against God, 
but rather their focus was uh, was wrong because their intention was to create one language and one ideology to which everybody will adhere. God sees that and says this will lead to terrible consequences because uh, there there will be oppression. Uh, this we could say is if we look at other governments as maybe the the flood the pre-flood government as the government of Hamas, which could be described as maybe either oligarchy or um, or uh, or anarchy. Here we find a government of uh, extreme of communism to the extreme, where the uh, where the name or the or the fame of the country overrides the importance of the individual, uh, similar to what happened in the Soviet Union during the moon race, where uh, all the money was spent on the moon race while farmers were starving and their machinery was failing, or North Korea launching missiles uh, that explode mid-air and whose price could have fed the whole country for 20 or more years. So this a similar thing happens in Migdal Bavel, and God, as a gift to humanity, creates this mixture of languages. This is another... Uh, origin myth, meaning it's not necessarily did not necessarily happen that way, but rather it's a it's a story, it's a it's a prophetic story that tells us the origin of languages, saying that it's a gift from God, the the ability to have diversity and to speak in other different languages and to look at different things from different angles is a great uh, is a great gift. So in a way, we could say that this also this story also um, encourages. The um, the arts, the fine letters, some some things that somehow are uh, were abandoned by the religious community, as we say that uh, uh, working with uh, with uh, with plastic arts or drama or singing or 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 literature are not important enough, and we understand from that story that they are extremely important because those are the the tools and vehicles for the individual to express himself or herself in many ways one could say that the modern orthodox community definitely the ultra orthodox community but i'm speaking even the modern day uh, orthodox community is somewhat like the tower of babel where everybody has to adhere to the same hashkofa to the same worldview to speak in a different in a certain way to dress in a certain way to uh, to accept certain institutions and reject others, this is not a healthy a healthy situation, and we have to address it in educational institutions within our families to let to let enough space for this diversity and the freedom of the human spirit, just as God intended for it when He provided this diversity of languages in Migdal Bavel. Following that story, so now we're going through societies in Bereshit. The Torah checks out one society after another; they all fail. We will later on see that uh, in the in the in the following parasha, Lot chooses to live in Sodom. Sodom, contrary to common uh, belief, Sodom's sin was not sodomy, even though the word sodomy refers to homosexuality. It really uh, refers to uh, one. To the sexual act without consent, uh, but it's not it's not the what the what the Torah says. The uh, the Tanakh never explains, not in the not in Bereshit, 
what was the sin of Sodom. But it does say that in the book of Yehezkel, Ezekiel, in chapter uh, 19, sorry, in chapter 13, Verse 49, sorry, chapter 16, verse 49, the Only this, only this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Only this, arrogance. So this is in a sense, uh, the Navi insists, only this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Arrogance. She and her daughters had plenty of bread and untroubled tranquility, yet she did not support the poor and the needy. So what really happens in Sodom is that selfishness, that we could say this is cap- capitalism to the extreme. If the Tarbavel was communism to the extreme, here we see capitalism to the extreme, where to each his own. The poor, the needy, those who come from the outside are not welcome. That's the reason why when the guests come to visit Lot, the people of Sodom surround the house and say, bring out the men and let us know them. Yes, it means know in the biblical sense. They want to uh, to rape them, but not. it is not for pleasure. It is not a consensual thing. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has to do with embarrassment. They want to embarrass those people in such a way that will ensure that no one will ever come again to visit the city. So, the Torah knocks out one form of government after the other, whether it's uh, oligarchy, totalitarianism, communism, capitalism, and eventually Avraham is presented. Avraham, we could say, is the rule of one. The one person who, through uh, adherence to the words of the Torah, and and it's the Kaum Ishpat, loving kindness and justice, will be able eventually to educate the world. We continue in Sefer Bereshit. In, in chapter 17, we find the commandment about the Berit Milah. And this is the only mitzvah that we find in the book of Bereshit. The only mitzvah that is later on repeated in the Torah, in Sefer Shemot, that uh, one must perform the circumcision on the eighth day. Anything else that is mentioned in Bereshit is not repeated later on in the Torah as a, as a commandment. The most famous one is Gita Nasheh, the sciatic nerve. It is mentioned as a practice, as a custom, which we'll talk about when we get to Al-Khot Shehita and the Ma'acharot uh, Asurot, laws of uh, forbidden foods. But basically the Torah says regarding Gita Nasheh, the sciatic nerve, Therefore the Israelites do not eat the sciatic nerve, but does not phrase it as a mitzvah. And the rest of the laws that people attempted to derive from Bereshit are only insinuated as practices such as the dowry or the laws of, uh, one could say, matchmaking or or uh, or wedding, funerals, eulogies, etc. They're all insinuated. They only show us what the practices were in the time of the Torah. As a matter of fact, if we talk about that, we'll see later on that there are certain uh, practices that oppose the uh, the law of the Torah, such as the Leveret law, the Yibum, whereas the Torah says, Ki yeshavu that if the brothers, one of the brothers dies without a uh, without a child, then his uh, brother should marry the, the widow. 
in order to reestablish the uh, inheritance or the uh, genealogy of the dead brother, in Bereshit we find that Tamar, the daughter of Yehuda, attempts to establish the Leveret law through her father-in-law, since she wasn't able to do it through her brother-in-law, as if it were according to the Torah, this is what the Torah would have wanted, she does it to her father-in-law. So it seems that there are certain practices that pre-existed the Torah and that they were and were different. So the question here, the question that we must ask, must ask when we um, when we address the idea of the uh, seat in life or the historical background of the mitzvot is whether the the law that we find in Torah is an essential law, the, Torah, the a law the Torah wants wants us to follow for eternity, or it was a law that came to address a certain situation, but once that situation is gone, then maybe the, the halakha will change. That question also pertains to another important element that we find in Bereshit, and that is of the sacrifices. Abraham, and after him, Yitzhak and Yaakov, and even before them, Noah, uh, offer sacrifices to God, actually even Cain uh, and Hevel, offer sacrifices to God. It seems that was the natural way of worship, and what I might say even today, this is the way people uh, think of their relationship with God. They have to make a certain sacrifice, whether it's a mental sacrifice, a sacrifice of time, of energy, of uh, of money, something they have to do to show their relationship to God. And even when we talk about a relationship with other people, we talk about them sometimes in uh, terms of a sacrifice. This is something that I'm willing to do for you to show how much I love you. So, <clears throat> when we come to the Korbanot, we'll have to ask the questions, as uh, we all know, according to Maimonides, the Korbanot were a compromise that God uh, allowed the, the, the Israelites, when they came from Egypt, out of Egypt, to, um, to bring sacrifices, because that was the only way of worship that they were familiar with. Is the Rambam, is Maimonides suggesting that in the future there will be no sacrifices. So, and if this is true, then what is the role of the temple in our literature? And why do we speak so much about the sacrifices in our prayers? Is it it is possible that we do that because this is the only thing that we are capable of hoping for? We're praying for the past, for past glory. Because we're not capable of thinking what will what will the future bring, but this past glory keeps us uh, motivated to do greater things. This is one possibility. The other possibility is that yes, there will be a temple, but maybe when the temple will be rebuilt, then the sacrifices that we will, we will bring will not be animal sacrifices. Maybe maybe they will be only offerings of uh, of bread and vegetables that people will share together. No one knows uh, for sure, but. What we do know, and that's the next thing that we have to um, to tackle as we go through the book of Bereshit, the famous story of the Akedah, of the binding of Yitzhak. This is in uh, chapter 22. God tries Abraham, or tests Abraham, to see whether he will be willing to sacrifice his own son. I wrote and. and uh, spoke about it extensively in other places. So I'll just say briefly here that it is obvious from the context of the story and the way it ends 
that God never intended for Abraham to sacrifice his son, and actually he wanted for him to stand up and say, I am not going to do that. Abraham was supposed to oppose to the uh, request of sacrificing his own son. The Torah teaches us several lessons. One is that we should not ask a favor from someone if we know that he cannot say no. And Abraham was asked by God to bring his own child, and he was so close to God, he had such intimate relationship with God, that he was not able to say no. Um, that is one lesson. The other lesson is, of course, that God is not interested in human sacrifices, and it will be derived from that later on, that God is not interested in animal sacrifices as well. The uh, One of our, I think, major problems of Jude- Jewish theology that at a certain point, mainly after the destruction of the Second second Temple, and because of the close relationship uh, with, or at least proximity in time and space with early Christianity, uh, Jewish theology started accepting the idea of martyrdom, of dying to sanctify God's name. And we will talk about the uh, exact details of how this halakha evolved from the ancient halakha to the time of the Maccabees to the Mishnah and beyond. But it is obvious that uh, the idea of martyrdom has become more uh, important and more central in Jewish community in Germany because of the Christian influence. The idea of uh, sainthood, of martyrdom, the seeing the, the crucifixion everywhere, described in statues and in uh, in drawings or murals, uh, affected the Jews. They felt that this is the right way to worship God. I mean, if not the right way to worship God, at least they felt they have to be at the same level as their neighbors, the Christians, in their service of God. Whereas in the Sephardic world, who lived under Islam, this was not of such high uh, importance because people slowly came to rationalize the idea that one when faced with uh, with mass conversion, with the demand for mass conversion, one should rather try to save his own life and restart Jewish life somewhere else, which, as we know, happened uh, during the expulsion uh, from Spain. In any case, uh, the idea that one has to sacrifice his life, and if not his life, at least something, it permeates uh, modern orthodoxy today, definitely ultra-Orthodoxy, but even modern Orthodoxy, in the sense that when people speak about, <coughs> even about Pesa, you might hear someone say, yeah, of course, we know uh, Pesa is not easy, we suffer. No, we know, we're not, we're not supposed to suffer. Pesa is a happy, joyous holiday. If we stick to the to the uh, core halachot, as they should be, it's not a big issue to clean the house or to kosher the house, to prepare the, the right foods. No halacha, and this is an important rule, no halacha, no mitzvah should be uh, associated with suffering. Difficulty, yes. Not everything is easy. Uh, but suffering is not part of the ideology of the Torah. This is a, a non-Jewish idea that entered our religion from Christianity and from an attempt to rationalize our own suffering and exile uh, through the long years of uh, of diaspora, uh, to the the pasuk in Tanakh that best ref- 
describes the Akedah is uh, in Micha, Micah, chapter 6, the verses 6, 7, 8. And that is what the Prophet asks, Bama Akadema Adonai ikaf lelohem arom, ha'akademenu be'olot ba'agani b'neshana. With what shall I approach the Lord, do homage to God on high? Shall I approach Him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with myriads of streams of oil? So up to here, the Prophet says, Should I bring a sacrifice to God? God says, No. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sins? Here is a direct reference to Abraham. Does God want human sacrifices? It starts with the question, does God want, want animal sacrifices? And ends with, does God want human sacrifices? And the answer is no. He has told you, O man, what is good. Now you should know, you the son of man, what is good. What the Lord requires of you. Only to do justice and to do and to love goodness and to walk modestly with your God. This again is direct reference to Avram because Avram was the one who did it tzedakah mishpat, loving kindness and justice. And here mishpat ve'avat hesed. What is Walking modestly with God. It does not speak about modesty of dress, which is not at all a concern of the Torah and not a concern of the Tanakh. But rather something that has been blown out of proportion by uh, by later scholars, later sages. But rather the Pasuk speaks about the modesty of religious practice. You want to be religious, you want to be observant, it's between you and God. You don't wear your religion on your sleeve. You don't uh, flaunt it around just to show people how religious you are because then it loses all uh, depth and meaning. The idea of the religiosity or the, the religious adherence in the Torah is that we improve ourselves, we become better people, we connect to ourselves, we connect to God, and through this we connect to other people and we affect them for the better. This is the idea that is contained in love the other as you love yourself. Meaning that first you have to love yourself, find what is the best way for you to realize your potential, then take this and apply it to other people. Use your powers and talents to help other people. So, this is the story that we learn, uh, or the message that we learn from the Akedah. And as I said, there's more material in writing and in audio classes that uh, we could use. We keep moving through the book of Bereshit, and uh, we learn from the story of Yaakov and Isav several things. One, is that uh, a husband and wife should communicate better because the lack of communication between Yitzhak and Evrika led to the great confusion with the blessing for the children, which led in turn to their uh, feud, the Yaakov running away, and to the all the future uh, travesties of, uh, of Yaakov, all of his suffering in the book of Bereshit, in the house of Lavan, the way he's being deceived by Lavan to marry Leah before hell, the way his children fight in between themselves because they came from different mothers who one of them felt less love than the other, 
uh, what happens with his children who deceive him, all these are directly associated with what Yaakov did to Esav, taking his blessing without uh, consent, deceiving his father. The Torah teaches us that when we do something that is inappropriate, we will pay the we will pay the price. And Yaakov definitely paid the price. It is only much much later in the Nevi'im Haronim in the book of Malachi, chapter one, verse two, where we read this famous pasuk: Yaakov Yaakov saneti." Yaakov is a brother to Esav, yet I have accepted Yaakov and I have rejected Esav. This is a much, much later prophecy that uh, could even uh, have taken place after the return from Zion, where Esav is already identified as an uh, as an enemy. But in the Torah itself, we don't find that Esav was a wicked person and there is no justification for what Yaakov did. The storyline, how Yaakov keeps being deceived by his father-in-law, by his wives, by his children, and how the children, uh, his children deceive each other, clearly show that Yaakov had to pay dearly for what he did to uh, Yaakov, to Yitzhak, and that the Torah wants us to know that we have to act with honesty. So, this is the uh, the message we learn from, it's a halakhic message, because it pertains to the way we behave uh, on a daily bas- basis. We could say that this really is the idea of uh, of business ethics. Uh, we learn other details of business ethics from the uh, response of the Akov to Lavan, when Lavan accuses him of running away. This is in chapter 31, verses 38 to 40, where he says, he says, These 20 years I have spent in your service, your ewes and she goats never miscarried, nor did I feast on rams from your flock. That which was torn by beasts I never brought to you, I myself made good the loss. You exacted it of me, whether snatched by day or snatched by night. Yaakov says that he had full responsibility, even beyond what other shepherds uh, would do. But we learn from that that there were cases of accusations of uh, between the uh, the owner of the flocks and the shepherds of animals that were missing. Uh, we'll talk about it later when we get to the um, the laws of shehita. What is the idea of what is the concept of terefa uh, as it appears in the Torah? With that, we conclude the uh, discussion of the most important. Uh, points with halachic implication in the book of Bereshit. Um, and of course, having in mind that the full story of the sibling rivalry between Yosef and his brothers and the uh, the dilemma of Yosef of whether he should notify his father when he became the viceroy or should he keep on uh, hiding himself, maybe as an attempt to fulfill the dreams or to fulfill the mission that he think uh, was meant for him, these are really the, uh, uh, I would say, the dilemmas, the halachic dilemmas that we have on a regular basis. That how do we balance what we think is the will of God with with reality? Maybe maybe those are the two conflicts that we could say uh, typify the book of Bereshit. One is the story of the Akedah, the dilemma of Abraham of should I go with what God told me and sacrifice my son 
Or should I go with my heart and my conscience, uh, which says that I cannot kill humans, that I cannot kill my son, that I cannot do this to my wife, Sarah, who is going to be agonizing over that. Um, that is one dilemma. The other one is that of Yosef, where Yosef finds himself in the position of the viceroy, and he believes that he was meant to be there in order to provide a safe haven to, for his brothers and uh, and father, but he fails to notify his father, maybe because he thinks that this will uh, will cause him to abort the mission. So, and later on, I think that Yaakov rebukes him for that. When they meet, he keeps saying, oh, I, now that I saw you, I could die, as if telling him, I was a living dead all these years that were away. So those two stories, I think, typify the uh, the conflicts that people have in the world of Halakha, that um, those are really are... I would say the bulk of the questions that come to the to the uh, desk of a rabbi. It's not about yeah. There are questions about you know how much how much matzah I should eat, uh, uh, what is the height of this chair and the length of that uh, of that sleeve, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the the questions that are really dilemmas that one cannot uh, draw a clear line of black and white are those that uh, become a struggle between our uh, commitment towards God and our uh, emotional uh, ties and our uh, sensitivities and the way we care about other people. Um, many people would say today that uh, emotions has nothing to do with halakha. Or in other circles when they discuss that, the, the term meta-halakha would be used. It's a very favorite term nowadays. Meta-halakha as the, the ideas and the concepts that are outside the realm of halakha. But I would like to disagree uh, on that and say that there's nothing which is meta halakha. All the factors, every single details about the life of an individual of a fam- or a family or a community that faces a certain halakha question, they all count, they're all part of halakha. An example for that we could see in Masichat Sanhedrin where the Mishnah says that one who has no children or who is now very old and does not have young children, cannot serve as a judge in a court that uh, could decide on issues of capital punishment because he lacks the midah of Rahamim. He doesn't have that uh, sensitivity anymore. Since he doesn't have his own children or his children are already old, is lacking on the ability to sympathize with with the accused. It's an amazing statement by the rabbis, they say emotions do count. We need that judge to be emotionally healthy and to be able to understand what the person in, who stands in front of him, what is he going through. An example from uh, modern halachic uh, uh, literature would be the example of aguna. We have, as we know, two types of agunot. The aguna, whose husband is missing, missing in action, missing or in accident, or... So like a terrorist attack, such as the Twin Towers, and the Aguna, whose husband is in front of us, I mean, he's available, accessible, but who refuses to give a get. Now it is agreed among rabbis that when we deal with an Aguna, whose husband is missing, that we will do anything within our power to help her get out of this state of uh, being anchored or being chained to a... Uh, a missing husband, and to let her remarry. The the halakha understands her plight. But when it is an aguna whose husband is in front of us, we could hear uh, or re- read Rabbi saying, 
okay, she could wait. Or she doesn't have to marry someone else. Not understanding that it's not about her marrying someone else, but rather her uh, being able to feel that she's not tethered to someone who controls her, who chains her. Um, that is an emotional thing, but if we realize that this is for her an extremely important thing, then we would not say that, but rather try to find a solution for her as well. Or another example, what people call giyol humra, a reconversion, someone who has converted in a certain way that may be uh, not accepted by all, and is being told, okay, we want you to convert again. It's not about the the dry halacha of whether we are going to just just to make sure just to be safe we're going to take this person and ask him or her to uh, uh, dump in the mikveh again it's us questioning the identity of that person someone who uh, who grew up Jewish and according to even certain opinions of halacha is Jewish and now we are going to tell that person you're not Jewish enough or you're not Jewish at all, and we want just to make sure to have you dumping it in the mikveh, what we're telling that person is that basically your identity that you lived by for the last 10, 15, or 20 years is not there. And that is a big problem. Um, I had people that I dealt with that when I brought up this issue to them, and that that's how I feel about them, uh... They 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 start crying and saying yes it's true they took away my identity this is a big issue we don't know that the Torah allows us to do that if according to the law of the Torah a person has converted and his conversion is valid how do we have the power to come and question that to say no just for the sake of strict halacha we want to um, to discuss this again or something which is less uh, maybe less severe but much more common and that is disputes between uh, spouses, husband and wife, about halakha, or parents and children, where the parents feel that they must impose strict halakha, or where the children <coughs> who went to yeshiva or to, to a religious school feel that they must bring their parents up to speed and to have them keep halakha in the best, uh, what they think, the best way uh, possible. So... And then also, I had situations of uh, uh, a neighbor, for example, whose husband used to go to another to another synagogue, another shul, and when we would come back from synagogue, she would say, oh, you finished already? And I would say, yes. And she said, oh my God, now my husband is going to be back home. She dreaded the moment that her husband is, come, is back home from shul on Shabbat, because he would start fighting with the kids right away about how they do certain things. So for him, that may be, in, from his point of view, he believes that for the sake of God, he must do whatever is necessary to make sure that his kids do not transgress Shabbat. From what, what he achieved in the personal level is uh, creating a state almost of an animosity between him and his wife. Uh, the children dreaded his return home from the synagogue. And as a result, uh, drifted away from observance slowly. Uh, so here also we are obligated as rabbis, as teachers, to find the golden path, the middle way where uh, the parents and children can meet in the middle and say, you see, this is uh, either to find a more lenient view of halakha or to say, 
it is better for you to let them be as to to let your your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister or your child your son or your father do what they do respect them and make them feel that you could be an observant Jew and still be part of that family part of that world maybe it will change their mind maybe it will not but one thing is for sure that trying to impose on them will not work so this is an a extension and amplification of the dilemmas that Abraham faced when he was asked to sacrifice his son, that Yosef faced when he was dealing with the question of, do I reveal my identity? Do I tell my father that I'm alive? Do I risk the mission uh, that what God uh, sent me to do? And I think with that we could wrap also the whole book of Bereshit and say that this is the essential question of, uh, what is the purpose of Torah and Mitzvot? There are two, there are two worldviews, uh, main worldviews within Orthodox Judaism. One sees the purpose of the world as the observance of the Torah for the sake of that very goal, the observance of the Torah. When the full, the whole Torah is observed, God is happy, or the world is perfect. So even if there's only one person in the whole world who observes the whole Torah, that is fine, because the Torah has been observed. It's about the Torah and about God, it's not about humanity. Another worldview, there's another extreme, would say the Torah is all about mankind. It's all about humanity. The Torah carries with it the message to heal humanity. So if, by observing the Torah, we push people away from that goal, we push people away from observing the Torah, that something has uh, gone awry. That is, this is not what we want. So if we apply this dichotomy to the situation that we have today in the Jewish world, we would see that one camp says, I don't care that only 10 or or 5% of Jews observe the full Torah, what we think is the full Torah, with all the restrictions and all the fences, all the practices that were added on to this magnificent building of the Torah over, over millennia, we don't care that only 5% keep that. That is fine. Even if it would be only uh, 1% of 1%, that will still be okay because the Torah has been observed. And we cannot change any halacha or we cannot update any practice, fence or law uh, to remedy that situation because the situation is not flawed. Everything is okay. And on the other hand, you have people who say the ideal of the Torah is that as many people as possible will observe the Torah and hopefully even people outside the fold of the Jewish people. And if we don't have that, that's a failure. So when we take this question now and we apply it, for example, to the idea of a fence that was created by the rabbi, by the rabbis, we ask ourselves, we could use the, the, the argument that uh, appears over in the Gemara, Kol if it's a gzera, if it's a decree that cannot be uh, followed by the by the tzibur, right? And gozrim, you you have to not make the decree or recall the decree. But when we come to uh, proponents of the first worldview, that is that as long as some people do it, it's okay. That some people observe the full Torah, we are we're fine. And we say, you know, the the, the people cannot follow the decree. Let's just take a random example. People cannot wait six hours between dairy and meat. We have to change. We have to make three hours. 
They say, no, it's okay. In our community, it's fine. Everybody keeps it. If you would say, you know, legumes on Pesach is impossible to keep, or it's very hard to keep it, very expensive, they would say, no, it's not, because our people could do it. You would say, what about the other 85% or 90% who don't do it? We don't care about them because they're not the tzibu, they're not the community. Meanwhile, the the other uh, worldview would say, if 85 or 90% of Jews do not follow these laws, then the purpose of the rabbis in creating the fences is is lost. Because they wanted to create fences in order to help people remain within the fold of Judaism and observe the Torah, but now they're not doing that. So that all brings us back to the very beginning of Bereshit from the Midrashic point of view, when the Midrash says that Abraham, that Adam erected a fence around Etzadat in order to prevent his wife from touching the from eating the fruit, he said, Do not touch and do not eat. But it led to her transgressing the fence, touching and then eating. This of course according to Midrash. But what the Midrash was trying to tell us is that we have to be very careful that uh, what might happen is that by creating so many fences around the Torah, we'll end up transgressing the Torah. And I think this is what we are facing today. By adding so many layers of prohibition and restrictions and details of halachot um, uh, uh, regarding concepts that are not even biblical, we have pushed people away and we cause them to not be as observant as they could have been if they only observed the core concepts of the Torah. So this is something that we'll touch upon again in uh, in other occasions. But for now, we have concluded with this discussion, the book of Bereshit. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.